0: Well, good morning again. Welcome to all of you. Welcome to those of you who are joining us online. It is 2020, which means the future is now. Right? <laughs> We're living it. Uh, but it's true, the future is now. We, we may not have flying cars, but we have self-driving cars, which I think is even more impressive, really, when you think about it. And uh, maybe if you grew up watching the Jetsons like I did, maybe, maybe we don't have robot maids, but we do have robot vacuums. <laughs> it's pretty good, right? And we got other robot things coming on the way. And uh, maybe our food doesn't come with just a touch of a button, but we can get our coffee that way now. And there's even a new system, I think it make a cocktail that way. And we still have microwaves. And, and for everything else, even though we don't have Star Trek style transporters, we have Amazon Prime one day shipping. It's like a some market's one hour by drones. I mean, this is, this is crazy. And so this may not be the picture of our reality, but the future is now. Think about what we do have. We have moving sidewalks. We have phones that listen to us and talk back intelligently, speakers that do the same. We have doorbells that, that, that you can see through. I mean, right? They're like video camera doorbells, and we've got touchscreens on everything. The future is now. And yet, as much as we have become advanced and sophisticated and overcome so many technological challenges and innovation just wins the day, there are still some of these ancient pesky problems that that are tripping us up just as much as ever, right? Think about the conflict that we experience in relationships, in our marriages, in our, our families, things that we just can't seem to get over with people in our lives. Or you think about the way that conflict plays out between tribes or nations And, and I mean in our world today there are many wars and threats of wars as ever right we're living in that right now or you think about how hard it is to let go of things that have happened in the past pain in the past or mistakes that you've made in the past and and how we don't really know what to do with our past we don't know what to do with betrayal we don't know what to do with an uncertain future and and that that keeps tripping us up or you think about any number of things that just seem to get in the way in spite of our really high-tech, future-oriented world. And, and for me, I just think that everything would get so much better If only we could really embrace these words from Paul in Romans 12. I want to read these words to you and you can look at them on the screen or better yet, maybe just even close your eyes and and just just acknowledge, let these words wash over you and acknowledge that if only we could do this, everything would be better. Life would be better, wouldn't it? Just listen to these words. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, but cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. But be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Don't repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what's right in the eyes of everyone. And if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Don't take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. So on the contrary... If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You can open your eyes if you took the opportunity to close them. See, those ancient words from Paul are are from his letter to Rome, book of Romans chapter 12, and they're going to frame this entire series for us. And here's what I find, that often in our modern world, we scorn the ancient as if it's simple or primitive or foolish, and yet the ancients knew things that we often lose sight of. Do you know that? Do you realize that? And not only that, we believe that some of these ancients, people like Paul, were inspired by God with wisdom that is absolutely timeless. And so as much as we see Our modern problems as modern, they they aren't so modern. They're ancient too because they're human problems. Which is why we still see in our day as much as ever, we see people who are really successful people. People who have achieved great levels of, of success in life who keep getting tripped up by really pesky, ancient problems, right? Matt Lauer's problem wasn't that he wasn't a great journalist who was willing to work hard or, right? He had another problem. Or Jeff and Mackenzie Bezos, Jeff Bezos, founder of, uh, of Amazon, um, and his wife who built that business with him over 25 years of marriage, they literally acquire all the money in the world. I, mean, I don't think that's an overstatement. I think they have it. You know, If you're looking for money, they've got it all. And yet while most of us in our marriages say that conflict over money is the number one source of conflict, it appears that having all the money in the world, like the Bezos family, isn't enough to keep a marriage working. They got tripped up by other things. Or you think about Felicity Huffman or Lori Loughlin, they didn't lack for intelligence or or talent or ability or resources when they defrauded colleges to get their daughters in, right? They got tripped up by something else. And and by the way, whatever happened to buying your kid into college the good old-fashioned way? Just build a building. It's not that hard, right? (laughs) It's worked for hundreds of years. That's what you do. And here's what I know. Here's what I don't like about this. I I don't like pointing fingers at these people because they're people, and I think it's cheap and easy to point fingers at them. The only reason I do that today is because it's a convenient example because their stories are exposed, their stories are known, whereas with all of us sitting here today and the people sitting around us, people sitting around you at home, the people that you know in your life, the people who live around you, we're living these same stories over and over again. People who find success in so many ways, but who keep getting tripped up by old ancient problems, pesky problems that derail or blow everything else up. The problem with us here today, though, is that often those failures, those disasters, they're veiled under happy, successful, nothing to see here faces, right? And so sometimes we can't see things as they really are. But our stories are often the same. See, our topic this week is self-control, delaying self-gratification. This is an essential success skill for life, for a new decade. It's so important. And I don't think there's anyone sitting here today who would say that, hey, if you don't have self-control, it's no big deal, right? We would all agree that you need some level of self-control in your life. Otherwise, everything else you work for, everything else you achieve, doesn't matter how successful you become, you'll eventually make a critical mistake, you'll get tripped up, you'll derail the train, you'll blow up your life, right? I think we can all agree with that, that we all need self-control in order to guarantee ongoing success. I think the place where we probably can't agree, though, is how do you get this in the first place? Right? If you look at yourself, and I mean, it's a new year, so we're all thinking about this, right? If you look at your life and you go, hey, I'm kind of lacking self-control, how do you get it? Where does it come from in the first place? Are you just born with it? Now I'll tell you, if you've raised more than two children, you might think so. right? Because some of them come into the world and, and they're impulsive. And some come into the world and they're just restrained. And, right? I mean, that's been my experience. I won't name names of which is which. I'll protect the innocent. But it just seems that, okay, some people have it from birth and some people don't. And is that it? If you have it, great. If not, you're in trouble. I mean, you're going to blow up your life at some point. Or is it, is it a skill that we can all cultivate? If so, why is it so hard to cultivate? Here we are again in a new year. And so many of us have had the experience of: I just need more self-control over what I eat, over my exercise, over my mouth, over whatever it is. And yet we've discovered that just wanting it doesn't make it easy to get. So if it's not something we work for, is it is it a gift? In the scriptures, Galatians, it says that self-control is a fruit of the spirit, which means it's not necessarily something we cultivate in ourselves. It's something that God's spirit does in us, which which is great to know, right? We can ask for it. And yet, I also know there are a lot of faith-filled people, spirit-filled people who possess self-control in varying degrees. So no one would argue, I don't think, that we need self-control. But how do you get it? in the first place. And, and I'll tell you, first off, how you don't get it. You don't get it. You don't cultivate it in your life through the things that we often turn to when we think we need more self-control. First, first off, we don't get it by emphasizing the control part. And yet, this is what we do so often, right? We think, I need more self-control, and so we just get more controlling. Can we acknowledge that trying to control anything is just a bad idea you ever try to control a person in your life a, a spouse a child a parent it doesn't work it doesn't help the relationship you ever try to control your environment the world around you and things seem out of control you just start trying to control stuff it doesn't work out so well right even self-control can be a dangerous thing if we emphasize the control part see control that's not our business control comes from us trying to be God. Control leads to death. I don't know about you, but but I've gotten good at controlling things, but I realize it's not good to control things. And so this year, as I said, I'm emphasizing more of, of surrender. I need more surrender in my life, more relinquishment, less control, because control leads to death. And how many of us have ground ourselves to dust trying to control things? trying to control people, trying to control events, doubling down on on controlling ourselves, restricting ourselves, restraining ourselves so much that there's nothing left. And and what we're left with are anxiety disorders and obsessive-compulsive disorders and autoimmune diseases. We're left with anxiety, depression. We're we're left with with trying to micromanage people. We're, We're helicopter parents. We're codependent spouses. We're germophobes, whatever it is. See, control often leads to death. And even the way we translate this Greek word, we translate it in most modern translations into self-control. I would argue that's not the most faithful translation. That that word can also be translated inner mastery or restraint or discipline. Discipline is not a bad thing. It's different than control or self-regulation. It's something that we talk a lot about here at St. John's School. And they may sound like we're splitting words, but we're not. Those are actually different things. And and here's what I want you to know, that if you feel like you need more self-control in your life, the way to get it is not by doubling down on the control part. Uh, The second way that we often do this that does not work is through scare tactics and shame. But again, when we're lacking self-control, or someone in our life is, that's what we do, right? We think, if I don't get this under control, if if I don't fix this, then, and we go to worst-case scenario planning, or when we start to see it in our kids, we see that they're impulsive. What do we do? We sit them down and we say, if you don't get better at this, if you don't learn to control yourself, then what's going to happen is you're going to end up eating a steady diet of government cheese, living in a van down by the river. <laughs> don't you miss that guy? Yeah. Right? right? If, if I can just scare you about what's going to happen to you, then you're going you're gonna to get it. But all that often leads to is a bunch of people who are afraid. And they're filled with shame and they're struggling. And and in the church we do this too, right? We we say, hey, if if you you don't do this, then you're going to offend God, you're going to disappoint God, you may fail to make it into heaven. But here's what you can be sure of. That if you try to cultivate self-control, which is, again, is a noble thing, it's something we all need. If you try to do it through scare tactics or shame in other people or even in yourself then often what happens is you only intensify the very things that you're trying to resist. You make them stronger. I've heard someone put it this way, that what you resist persists, and what you fight, you strengthen. Now, I'm not sure if this is completely true, but there's truth to this, isn't there? What you resist persists, and what you fight, you strengthen. And you can think about the the war on drugs or the war on crime or the war on cancer. And and you think, by declaring war on something, do do we win or do we just intensify it? I don't know, but certainly in life, what you resist persists, what you fight, you strengthen. I I remember hearing a radio show a few years ago, and it was called um, something like, What Kills You? And it was all about these people who could not resist doing things that could kill them. There was one segment in particular, and it was all about people who every year, there are millions of people who end up in emergency rooms because they intentionally eat something that they are death, deathly allergic to. Any of you have a, a bad food allergy? Um, yeah, so you, you kinda know how this is, it's, it's a scary thing. Um, but this radio show was about people who, you know, for instance, know that they cannot eat peanuts, they could die. They'll go anaphylactic. I've, I've had an anaphylactic reaction twice in my life, I never wanna have it again, and yet there are people who know if you eat peanuts that it's going to kill you, and yet they eat peanut butter knowingly, intentionally, anyway, not because they have a death wish, just because they want peanut butter so badly that they can't say no, or shellfish, or, or whatever it is. And the whole nature of the show is just to examine, why do, why do we do things that we know can kill us? Well, well, maybe because what you resist persists, and what you fight, you strengthen. See, I can tell you that if you want more self-control, and again, it's a, it's a good thing, especially if we think about it in the right way, of mastery, restraint, discipline, self-regulation. If you want to cultivate more of that, shame and fear is not the way, doubling down on control is not the way. There is another way, there is a better way. And you might even be able to see it in Paul's words here in Romans 12. It's, it's kind of hidden, but I want to look at these words again. Paul says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Now think about the kind of self, self-control that takes, right? Someone's cursing you, and uh, not only are you not cursing them back, not only are you not retaliating, but you're going to bless them. I mean, that's, that's a high level of self-control. But, but look what he says next about how this might be cultivated. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Again, it's kind of cryptic there, but maybe you're beginning to see something, another way to cultivate this. Or if not there, because I don't think that's quite enough, um, I want to go to our, our case study for this series. This series is not only framed on the words from Romans 12, but it's also framed on these words um, on this ancient narrative from second kings chapter 5 700 years or so before paul wrote those words there was a story about a military commander named naaman and a prophet named elijah elisha uh, rather we looked at part of this last week we're going to look at part of it again um, and uh reacquaint you with this now naaman was a commander of the army of the king of Aram. So Naaman is a commander of a foreign army, actually a, a kind of a, a nation that was at odds with Israel during this time. So he's, he's the commander of the enemy's armies. He was a great man in the sight of his master, the king, and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. So he was winning in battle. That's why he was important. He was valiant. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Now bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. Now again, you know, ancient problems are modern problems; they're all the same. We we trip ourselves up over these same things. Do you know where Aram is today? What modern-day nation is now uh, we'd call Aram Syria? And you think about the stuff that's gone on in Syria the last few years. Uh, You think about this girl from Israel who these, these warring factions are going at it. This girl's carried into captivity. I mean, this stuff is still happening today. She's carried off as a human slave. She's serving Naaman's wife because they're wealthy, they're powerful. So this Israelite girl says to her mistress one day, if only my master Naaman would see the prophet who's in Samaria, who's back home in Israel, he would cure him of his leprosy. I know it. So the wife passes it on to Naaman. Naaman went to his master, the king, and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means, go, the king of Aram replied. Guess what? I'll even send a letter to go with you to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him ten talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and ten sets of clothing. Everybody's Valentine's Day list right here. Right? It's all you need. Um, a lot, there's a lot of wealth there. Um, um, the letter that he took to the king of Israel read, with this letter I'm sending my servant Naaman to you so that you may cure him of his leprosy. Now, as soon as the king of Israel reads the letter, he, he tore his robes and said, am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he's trying to pick a quarrel with me? So the king of Israel, you know, has a meltdown because he's going, you know, we're not on good terms anyway, and he's asking me to do something I can't do to heal his servant, and he's going to be mad if I can't, and and this is just going to provoke him to further action. And he tears his robes. It's a sign of distress or mourning or grief. So when Elisha, so this is the other guy you need to know, Naaman, the commander of the foreign armies, Elisha, this prophet of God. Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes. He had a temper tantrum. He sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots. must have been a spectacle. And he stopped at the door of Elisha's house. But Elisha doesn't even go out to see him. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, Go, wash yourself seven times in the Jordan and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Farhar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel anyway? Could not wash in them and be cleansed, so he turned and went off in a rage. Again, there's so much in this that we will look at in future weeks, but you see, you see the guy, he's struggling. He's, he's in a tizzy about this. So Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father... If the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? You know, if, if you would have said, stand on one leg and hop three times, and turn, like, like we do with hiccups. <laughs> Come on, you will do anything to get rid of hiccups, no matter how absurd. You've tried it, right? Because it's so awful that you're like, I'll, I'll try anything. You, you would have done it if it was wild. So how much more than when he tells you, go wash and be cleansed? Why, why don't you do it? So he listened. He went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, as the man of God had told him. And his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. It's better than Botox, friends. It's amazing. (laughs) Fountain of youth. Then Naaman and all of his attendants went back to the man of God. And here's what happens. Self-control, think about it. Uh, He stood before him and said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. So please accept a gift from your servant. The prophet Elisha answered, As surely as the Lord lives, whom I serve, I will not accept a thing from you. And even though Naaman urged him, he refused. Are you beginning to see it now? Another way that we can cultivate self-control in our lives? You see it in Elisha, not so much in Naaman, not in the king of Israel. I I think about it this way. Here it is: self-control comes when you have a yes big enough to clarify all those other things that aren't really worth it in life. See, we often think self-control is all about saying no, and that's how we approach self-control. I just got to say no to eating this. I've got to say no to doing this. I've got to say no to having that drink. I have to say no to this kind of activity. No, 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 no. And and what you resist persists. What you fight, you strengthen. See, self-control comes when you have a yes big enough to clarify all the other things that aren't really worth it. Or, or talking about today's topic, it's, it's really in this kind of subtitle, Self-Control, Delaying Self-Gratification. See, especially that delaying part. It's it's not about denying self-gratification. That's often how we think about it, right? Self-control is just saying, no, I cannot gratify myself, no way. It's not it. It's not about denying self-gratification. It's all about delaying self-gratification. Having a yes that's big enough that it clarifies all the other things that aren't really worth it. I want you to think about this from Elisha's perspective. Now, Elisha is a prophet of God. Prophets don't make a lot of money. It's not a lucrative business, not if you're an honest prophet. And so Elisha does this healing for Naaman. Naaman shows up on his doorstep with, with, uh, with all of this wealth and, and offers him a gift. Now, Naaman is a really important guy, and this healing is a, is a big deal. And this is not just an abstraction to Elisha. He sees it because there's horses and there's chariots in front of him. And those horses and chariots are carrying all these talents of silver and these shekels of gold and these sets of fine clothing. And Naaman's standing there saying, hey, you know, like take a gift for what you've done. This is incredible. And this would change Elisha's life. It would give him financial security for the rest of his life. But he refuses all of those gifts. Why do you think he does that? How do you think he does that? As I've wrestled with this here's what I've come to especially when you study more of Elisha's life that more important for Elisha than having financial security more gratifying to him than that is seeing this foreign commander of this enemy nation walk away from this incredible thing that happens to him, knowing not only is there a prophet in Israel, not only is the God of Israel the only true God, but knowing him as a God of grace. Now, I just want to pause from this story for a second and to come back to us here. And I want to be clear about something. That, that you can bow to the name of Jesus. And you can profess that you believe in the triune God. God. You can declare all those things. You can call on God by the right name. But if you don't know him as a God of grace, and what I mean by that is a God who gives to us without any expectation of repayment. If you don't know him as a God who is always generous, a God who is abundant in his generosity. If you don't know him as a God who loves us undeservedly, whose love is not fickle. He is not fickle in his affection. His his heart to to us isn't one thing today and another thing tomorrow. He is not a God. If if you don't know him as a God who you can't easily scare off by virtue of your bad behavior or your mistakes or your failings or your half-hearted worship or anything else, if you don't know him as a God that you can't buy off, You you can't earn his favor. He's pleased with you. He's, He's shown that to you by giving his son to us in human flesh to become like us, to reconcile us, to save us, to bring us back into relationship with himself. You can call on the name of Jesus. You can profess the triune God. But if you do not know him as a God of grace, then you don't really know him. Which is why Jesus says in Matthew 7, not everyone who says Lord, Lord will enter into the kingdom of heaven. And we look at that and we go, "Uh uh-oh. You know, I as a faithful worshiper, does that mean I'm going to get shut out of heaven? Or he says, Jesus will say to you, depart from me, I don't know you. The reason Jesus will say that to some is because they're calling on the right name, but they don't have the right guy. They don't have the right God. You can have the name right, but if you do not know God as a God of grace, then today, today, I beg you to go deeper, to know him as he really is. See, see, that's Elisha's, yes. Elisha had built his whole life on making the God of Israel known, not just as the most powerful God. But he had built his life on helping the God of Israel be known as he really is, knowing that everyone in his day was all messed up on who God was and there was all this false worship, and there were all these sacrifices people were making to try to get God's favor, Elisha's biggest yes, the thing that gratified him more than anything else, more than gold and silver and clothing, was that this guy, Naaman, would go home now knowing without a doubt who the true God is, and that he would have experienced him as a God of grace. And no amount of, of, of you know, temptation for Elisha to receive that gift would, would dissuade him. Because you know, he didn't want Naaman to go back home thinking that God was like everyone else. A God who, if you pay him off really well, he'll do something nice for you. He's a God of tit for tat. That's what all the other religions of the world say, by the way. What makes the true God different is that he's a God of grace. And that was Elisha's Yes. That's what gratified him more than anything else. So in the face of another form of gratification that would have lessened this bigger yes, it's easy. Today I want you to start to think about what that yes or what those yeses are for you. Those things that are so gratifying that they prevent you, they make you unwilling to settle for all of those other things that are less important. Is it, is it a lifelong marriage? Is it a whole family? Having a family where, where, there's, where there's wholeness, and I know all of our families are imperfect, but, it, but is it having a family where we don't let petty conflicts and unforgiveness get in the way, where we've got wholeness? Is it a body that's healthy and able to do the things that you want it to do? Is that your yes? I, I know a young dad, who started to really struggle with, with his, his weight and his health and, and nothing could kind of click for him. You know, he's doing this battle thing with self-control and trying to eat better and failing and trying to exercise and, and starting and stopping. And, and, and he says one day he was out playing with his, uh, his young kids in the yard and he noticed how winded he was. And suddenly he had this moment of clarity where he thought, you know what? I have always wanted to be a dad who could run around the yard with my kids and play and not be winded. And if I keep going this way, it's not going to happen. Scare, tactic, shame. No, no, no. He said, I want to be a dad who is able to play in the yard with my kids for as long as they're willing to play with me. And at that moment, he had a yes that changed everything. And this guy's made significant changes in his life so that he can have what his heart longs for, what he finds more gratifying. What, what is that for you? We all know people like this, right? People who, who they can't make a change. They, they can't do something until something big happens and suddenly they see, hey, this isn't worth it. This, this food, this drink, this, that next cigarette, it's not worth me not holding my grandkids. I want to hold my grandkids. And in the light of that, yes, it changes everything. What is that yes for you? Is it a heart at peace? Is it a life free from guilt and shame? Maybe it's something nobler or bigger or it's beyond you, it's in the world. Is it, is it seeing people come to know the true God as a God of grace like Elisha? Is, is it seeing suffering, needless suffering al- alleviated and meeting suffering with compassion like Mother Teresa? What is it for you? And here's what I can tell you, that the moment you find that yes or those yeses that are big enough, that, that they hold your attention, those yeses that are gratifying enough to you, the whole game with self-control changes. You'll suddenly find that self-control, the ability to use restraint, it becomes so much more natural. It just makes sense. It's never easy, and it's a fruit of the Spirit, and we need to keep asking God for it. But in the light of a yes that's big enough, in the light of a greater gratification than what's sitting in front of you, and having that clearly in mind, those other things begin to lose their power. And I'll tell you that yes, it could be anything, Even if you're not a follower of Christ, this works in every circumstance to a degree. But I also want you to know that some yeses are better than others. And here's what I think I fear for a lot of us here today, even those of us who call ourselves Christians. Too many of us, I I fear, don't really know God as he is. And as we talked about earlier, we don't believe in a God of grace. See, see my fear is that a lot of us sitting here today, we believe in a God of deprivation, in a God of lack, and a God of suffering. I think too many of us believe that if we do life God's way, then that's how we will end up, deprived, going without lack, and living a life all of suffering. And so, when shortcuts come along, when temptations come along, when the chance to, to have instant gratification comes along, of course we're going to take it. We, we, we got to get the good now because if we keep going on this path with God, it's, it, it, it's maybe noble and it's moral and it's right, but it's not gratifying. Only if you're a masochist, right, is it gratifying. And, and so, we reason that when those things come along, that, yeah, I, I want to follow God and that's probably nobler and better, but. We take the instant gratification because we don't know. We don't know God as he really is, as a a God of grace, as a God of generosity, a God of abundance, a God who has more in his hands to give to us than we could ever grab and take and claim for ourselves, a God who wants to lead us to the things in life that are truly worth saying yes to. I think far too many of us don't know that God. We, we don't trust that his yeses, the yeses that he encourages us to make our own, we, we don't trust or believe that those things could be gratifying enough to reframe all of those other things that might derail or blow up our trajectory in life. But I'm telling you, When you trust God's promises, when you begin to make his yeses your yeses, when you find those things and you taste and see and discover those things that are so gratifying that nothing else compares to them, the whole game of self-control changes. And so for you, where does this begin? How are you going to go about today beginning to find that yes for you that is so gratifying that everything else just kind of falls into its place. Everything else falls away. It changes your whole relationship with self-control. Here are a couple of places to start. Maybe for you, a great place to start is to just to start to look out a little further into the future. Maybe just start to think beyond the now to what might be out in the future and what you want for your future. There's more to this life than the here and now. The here and now is important, but God has created us for eternity. And so maybe that's a place where where you just need to start thinking out a little further. Or maybe for you, maybe this whole thing goes to the next step. When you really acquaint yourself with the promises of God, when you start to see him as he really is. See, so often when we read the Bible, we find what we're looking for. And if you believe that God is a God of deprivation, God's a God of suffering, God is a God of lack, who just wants to take everything away from us, then then you're going to find that stuff. That's all you're going to see. But if you start to see God as he is, as he's revealed himself through Jesus, and Jesus is the crystal clear picture of who God is, that he's a God of grace, he's a generous God, he's a God of abundance. When you start to read the Bible through that, you start to see all these promises that God makes to us. All of these things that he wants for us that are truly gratifying. And maybe that's what you need to do. Not, not try to read through the Bible in a year and some ambitious pat yourself on the back way. But maybe you just need to sit in the promises of God. And there are all kinds of resources that can help you. Or, or maybe for you. A great place is to invite someone else into the real life struggles that you're in. Invite the wisdom of a mentor or a counselor or maybe to invite the wisdom of a community around you. We're gonna have a Getting Connected event coming up in a week or two. We only do this a couple times a year, but it's an opportunity to get connected into a life group. And I'll tell you that for me, one of the most transformative things in my life has been having a group of like-minded people, people who also believe in a God of grace, who are trying to trust in his promises above the things that we can claim for ourselves journeying with me through life, it's it's been transformative as we just remind each other over and over again what is worth saying yes to in this life. And and here's the thing, right? You know this, that all day long, everyone's telling you what to say yes to, but a lot of that stuff leads to death. It's not eternally gratifying. It's not as significant as you might think. It's good for a moment and then it's gone. And And so having a group of people just constantly just being like, hey, let's remember, let's remember, because we're living in this kingdom of this world, but we are people of the kingdom of God. And what does it look like? To keep saying yes to the things that God says are truly gratifying. It's been life-changing for me. Maybe it'll be life-changing for you. Whatever it takes, however you need to do it, find your yes. Because when you do, when you find that yes that is big enough, that is good enough, that is godly enough, that is, that is gratifying enough, then not only does your whole relationship with self-control change, but then you, you begin to discover what it means to be truly successful here's what I want to do I want to invite you just to bow your heads and I've said a lot today and yet God knows exactly what needs to fall away and what needs to remain and so right now on your own just sit in stillness knowing that God's presence is here his spirit is here and without any panic or worry or, or control, just surrender to the Spirit of God. It just means be still. And let God drive this home, make sense of it to you in any way that He knows you need. Take a moment. God of grace, above all, I pray that you would help us see you as you really are. And God, I pray that you would help each of us find those yeses in life that will truly gratify us, not for a moment, not for a little bit, but starting now and forever pray this in Jesus. Amen. I invite you to stand. Uh, We're going to close, wrap up our service today with a song. And uh, I I don't know where you are in your journey right now, but I'll tell you that the most gratifying yes in all of the world is, is a yes to a relationship with Jesus. Not because it's morally right or true or the thing you should do, but a yes to a relationship with Jesus brings more into your life than you could ever imagine. And so today we're gonna close with a song that not only gives us an opportunity to say yes again to Jesus, because it's not something you do once at a critical moment in life, although that's important. It's something that you do again and again and again throughout this journey. This song will give you an opportunity to say yes to a relationship with Jesus, but I think it'll also help you remember why saying yes just makes sense. So let's sing together, let this be our yes.